I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. You're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Edmund Crispin's novel, The Moving Toy Shop. Uh, we're going to get into into that in a minute, though. How how's it, how are you, Heidi? How are you? I'm so sick right now, you guys. Yeah, I have a fever. You're I could recording well with sleep having last a fever. Night. Yeah, it's terrible. I've never done that. You never recorded while having a fever. That's not true. <laughs> you have? Well, yeah, surely, haven't you? Yeah, because like you, Probably. you can. You got to do it. Talk. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what's yeah. going to come out of my mouth today. Right, my, I don't remember it very well. Fever but... dreams, but <laughs> yeah. I am here. This is well, my this dedication is... to my job. This is the book to talk about then, right? We're not talking. Maybe. We've been off the air, we've been discussing how Heidi is teaching Boethius right now. Yes. But so she's been enjoying this. So nice. This book. Um, Murder is so great. That's <laughs> <laughs> so cheerful compared to Boethius. Uh, and you know that the murderer is never really the one who gets away with anything because they're the weakest and worse off because by of the reading Boethius, right? I do know right. that a murderer is never happy an evil wicked man yeah. is never happy. It is one. Yeah. So a con- the consolation of philosophy is one of the greatest books in history. It is a philosophical exploration of the nature of suffering and the comfort that comes by knowing and living the truth. It's great, but it is also really great to read some jokes. <laughs> some jokes, right? And uh, you know, sometimes when you're sick, you wanna you wanna read about how the, the suffering that you're going through is um, <laughs> is to your benefit. I'm in the man. But also, right. sometimes you want to not think about how you're suffering. It's guided by providence. So you know, you just alternate. Yep. C.S. Lewis's theory, right? So that's right. Well, we are going to discuss the moving toy shop, and we're going to tell people about our sponsor and all that. But Sean and Heidi, I need you both to respond to the the sort of looming question, the lingering question from our last episode, um, and that, of course, is about the puzzle in this book. Because we're going to talk about all kinds of things, but I want to have kind of a definitive sort of conversation about the puzzle. And then we'll mention our sponsor and then continue on. So Heidi, you go first. Oh, wow. The puzzle. I don't, you don't have to give it a grade, but just your assessment of it, because that was the thing that you were a little nervous about, it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I don't know if I was nervous about it as I was, um, I just wondered about the payoff and I, I don't want to hurt your feelings because I know you love this book so much, but I think that the puzzle was maybe the weakest part, but the book itself overall is still so great. Are you mad at me, David? Me? Am I mad at you? Yeah. Well, you're yeah. sick, so. You know. Oh, okay. You said you didn't know it was going to come out of your mouth. I'm feeling pretty sick too. Just before I say my thing, just want you to know. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I I I had a similar opinion. I thought that the back half of the book was a blast, but that the puzzle was the worst, the weakest part of it. I don't want. I don't even want to say worst because it was still enjoyable and satisfying. Uh, it seemed like the title was a red herring a little bit. And that the moving of the toy shop didn't end up being that important. Yeah, it gets resolved uh, three quarters of the way through the book. That's right. Uh, and then even even the the way that the murderer's identity reve- was revealed uh, was uh, still kind of perplexing and curiosity inducing, but was not uh, as dramatic as I was hoping it would be. I I totally am fine with this. I will say though that it's there like was some. Yeah, like a yeah. B B minus puzzle as far as it there goes. There was some clever. There was some clever misdirection for a while. He had me thinking that it was going to be the literary agent who was 
the the final error and actually the mysterious murderer. Uh, and then first he threw me off of that scent, and then he tricked me, and it was in fact he was in fact the last error, but had nothing to do with the crime. So there right. was some doubling back and some and some misdirection there that was enjoyable, but uh, yeah. And then this, he does a good job with Sally too, because like there's times yeah. when you when you wonder yes. if maybe she's you actually start to actually. I wonder, did yeah. think that it might be her. And when he put her in a room alone with Cadigan, and you think, oh man, what if this turns and she's actually like a devious minx who's going to kill him right now? Or yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was good. That was well done. Agreed. So when you think maybe they have like a love story and that's going to start. Yeah, too. right. Yeah. But then it doesn't pan out that way, which I thought was great. Like the misdirection. When I say that the puzzle is the weakest part, that's because so much of the book is so strong. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't he, he the whole book is so self-aware, like even mm-hmm. the part where he taught he brings up the deus ex machina. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> he like makes a joke about it. Yeah, and he's like, um, I don't, I don't think it's a we, I don't think it's bad. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm the defender of the Deus Ex Machina. Right, that was great. right. So he, so he's so self aware about the whole thing, and that kind of, to me, it's about the vibes more than it is the actual puzzle. But exactly. just, yeah, I'm just, I'm not somebody who is when I don't read mystery novels for the puzzles the way some other people do. I read like I read. Even Agatha Christie, who is sort of known for the puzzles, I don't. I read them for the for the vibes, you know, for for Poirot and and how eccentric he is, and you know, some of them I really enjoy. Like I really enjoy ABC Murders and the way she lays that out. But it's it's almost like it. I'm more interested in how they execute the puzzle than what the actual solution is half the time. And I don't yeah. know if that's just that's probably just me. Most people will, you know, will want to like be kind of caught up in the puzzle. And I I don't like, I don't read these books and ever try to solve them. I don't like (laughs) list the clues mentally or actually like in paper and try to try to put them all together and solve it. Well, I'm guessing ahead, but I'm mostly like thinking more like what's the author trying to do here? Is he trying to trick me or is okay. this legitimate? And right. I don't know okay. if that, okay. I don't, I don't know exactly why that is, but maybe it's because when I was younger, I read Harry, um, uh, Hardy boys and was just bad at guessing. And so then I just gave up. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I, I discovered I would have been a bad detective. Either. I'm with you. I don't, I don't, I will try to guess who I think it is and I'll try to pay attention if I think something is a clue or a red herring or, um, so, are you, but what, so I what's the difference? Are you saying you don't keep a notebook or, yeah, I don't. Do people do that? Yeah, so I guess, yeah people some people do. do. Jack yeah. reads, my son, he reads Agatha Christie, and he will always try to solve it. He'll be like, because the gun was hidden in, like, maybe they hid the gun in the hedge and yeah. substituted uh, it over here. Like, he yeah. tries to, like, solve it. Mm. And I, I, I guess I do do that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... like It's that's, fine. I mean, that's I don't, like part I don't of have a court board that. with string, and it's... You know that you're not that. That's always sunny in Philadelphia meme. Yeah, that's right. Which honestly, I'd like to recreate that and get a picture of you doing that and just make it part of our close reads like promo. That's a vibe. Sean is next time we all get together. We're gonna put a corkboard up in my little studio here and we're gonna make that into we're gonna recreate that and then we'll have to do one figure out something for Heidi and something for Tim and something for me. Um, uh, yeah, but I um. Like I, so do you guys read the Anthony Horowitz's books? Yeah. 
So I'm I've a huge, a yeah. I'm a huge fan of, in particular, the Horowitz and Hawthorne books, which okay. are like a yep, sort of really like good. a send up of Sherlock Holmes. He's written, I think, four of them. He kind of comes out like once every year or two. Uh, his uh, Magpie Murder ones are fine. I actually don't get as into the meta aspect of it where there's the story within the story. Uh-huh. But the Hawthorne and Horowitz ones I like, and I don't care so much about the plot. Sometimes the puzzles are good. Sometimes they're just sort of like there. What I like is that hanging out with Hawthorne and then the narrator, or the Hawthorne's the narrator. Um, Hor- no, Horowitz is the narrator. Hawthorne's the detective. I like hanging out with Hawthorne and the narrator and just all the Englishness of it and the comedy. And that's what I'm more interested in. So I suppose that's perhaps why I like the moving toy shop. Um, but I do think that he does a pretty good job in this book with some of like the action scenes actually kind of work pretty well. I given agree. that it's yeah. a book that's yep. funny, he can come like when the guy's riding down the lane on the bicycle and like they're all going through the Oxford streets. That it's both funny. hilarious and really well written as far yeah. as an action scene goes or the stuff with the uh what are the, what's the word they use the for the ferris not the ferris with the um the roundabout, the roundabout yeah, yeah. The, the merry-go-round yeah. the merry-go-round yeah. yeah um so i or think carousel. he does a, I guess that was a, yeah, carousel, carousel yeah. yeah he does a pretty good job with writing those action scenes as well so yeah um well we're going to dig into this book a little more before we do though i need to remind people about our sponsor this month and that is ecstasis magazine they're a digital cathedral of sorts that helps a generation of christians admire beauty and tune their spiritual spiritual and aesthetic affections. Um, they're nurturing the future of Christian writers and creatives through an annual print journal, monthly digital collections, an ambassador program, Ecstasis Cafe events, which we actually hosted one of um, at Goldberry a couple months ago, uh, a digital cathedral and social media. And their kind of view is that where social media flattens, they aim to deepen and meet people where they seek inspiration, Merging the heart of beautiful orthodoxy, a poetic lens of faith, skillful storytelling, and visual levity. If you would like to learn more about what they're up to um, or subscribe to their print journal or their digital uh, programs, you can go to ecstasismagazine.com. That's E-K-S-T-A-S-I-O-S-I-S magazine.com. And the link is in the show notes as well. So they are doing some really great work and I hope that you will support them. And we are grateful to them for uh, sponsoring this show. Okay, there's lots of places we could start. We talked a little bit about the, about the puzzle and I kind of put that out there as almost like a prelude because, you know, we don't really need to spend an hour, 45 minutes or whatever, breaking down the puzzle and what works and what didn't work because right. I don't think that that's to, to, both of, to the point that both of you are sort of making, I think. That's not really what makes this book a good mystery novel. Yeah. And so I wanted to focus on with with that out of the way, on the things that make this book uh, really good, Sean, you said that you had a blast in the second half of this book. What was it for you that was that was most appealing? Uh, it was the set pieces. So we've talked about a few of the action scenes. There were a few other sequences that were really clearly drawn uh, and really enjoyable. Uh, some were outright humorous. Uh, some were just. Uh, they just worked really well. I thought uh, chasing Charmin into the theater was yes. was a great moment uh, where the the bath, the, yeah the the uh, the whole the whole uh, male bathers scene was absolutely <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Uh, I liked that in the theater there was a dramatic movie playing in the background. Yeah, western, and he he layers over 
uh, or a murder has just occurred. Well, you, I guess we we come in just as the murder is occurring. Yeah. And then we uh, hear lines of dialogue where people are referring to the murder. Uh, but it ends up being inconsequential. It's the kind of thing where if you are a super sleuthy detective story reader, you might be looking for clues even there. Like, right. There's yeah. some sort of parallel to the uh, yeah. and there really isn't. But it's a it's a fun coincidence. And then off they go. And yeah, the uh, the bathers uh, the oh, man, there's. Uh, One thing I love about that movie theater scene is that there's that part where the guy dies on screen and then Ben <laughs> just goes dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, when they when they arrive when they arrive at the river and one of the old men dashes incontinently back into the uh the dressing rooms. Oh man. That's and then the two so Scylla and Crib just fall into the water and they can't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Heidi, they're never you, heard from again. Yeah, yeah never right. heard from again. Yeah, yeah. So what about for you, Heidi? I I mean, maybe it's the same thing that Sean is saying, but for me, it's the scenes. Like, they're so... It's like, I I can see this on screen. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I'm surprised no one's done it. Right. Me too. I went but after I read should. the back half, I went looking for adaptations and I was surprised I didn't find one. Yeah. I kept uh, reading it thinking yeah. I might need to write a screenplay of this book. You should. You should. That would be so great. Yep. Yeah, and I I think for me, it just seemed like this like love song to Oxford. Um, yeah. Like he just like loves the city and is showing all of its like foibles and some of the ridiculous parts of it with such like tenderness. He's like ch- laughing at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the some of the ridiculousness with with just such like effervescence like it makes me want to go to oxford again um yeah yeah and i can see all of this playing out i loved the chase scene when he's like gathering all of his students and and tells them he's going to talk to them about hamlet (laughs) (laughs) he needs their help and and they don't even question it it's just immediately they start volunteering yeah yeah, I, I like oh, how man. he sets that up too. The boy, the the men are just kind of sitting there, like, and then the girls are all like ready to take notes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and in that scenes. sense, I think I was really grateful that they made a like an unappealing character, the murderer, and didn't make one of his like delightful. I was like worried it was going to be Sally yeah, or yeah, the yeah. student or you know yeah. somebody that yeah. you have Hoskins an affection or... for, um, because I liked all of those characters and I didn't want to be like I didn't want any of them to be the villain, and so right. I was grateful yeah. that it was the 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 one who and what I loved about the villain is that he's the guy who didn't get the joke, right? And the <laughs> Absolutely. Bob, and then at the end when he dies, he's like, well, that's one less Janeite. Yeah, perfect. Oh, <laughs> uh, I I liked that very much. So I yeah, I I really just love the whole setting in my head of this. It's such a British story, um, and it's 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 just so affectionate towards the place where it's happening. Yeah, yeah. It was really enjoyable for me to read this, having been to Oxford in in the spring. Like, yeah, that helps the. Having you know, seeing, having a recollection of the streets that they're on, or having it looks different than um, it would have in 1945, but not that much different. I and mean, that's kind of the point of Oxford. Barely, right? that's right. Yeah. So you know, the there's public, the lamb and the flag is still there, and the bird and the baby, although it's not sadly. Well, well, I, I think it's coming back. 
Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't in May when I was there, but yeah. there, apparently someone had bought it and is developing it into a, a hotel upstairs or something, so they're going to bring it back, but supposedly, I don't know. Because it's an Oxford tradition and they care about that in England right. like a lot. That's yeah, right. right. And so there's another there's a lamb in the fly, there's another King's Arms, you know, all these different pubs that are in different spots, you know, around and the bucket um, of blood student yeah. culture and the old men like it is the place and it's the people and he's just winking at us the whole time and i thought the action sequences like you said sean were really good um yeah. that whole merry-go-round the turnabout scene was great like that yeah. was really good i liked it they're running through they're like running through a courtyard chasing somebody and in the meantime they catch snippets of a conversation about the eclogs between two yeah. dons that's great and we never get to Meanwhile, hear the police inspector's about... theory about measure for measure oh man that was one of the great running gags in the yeah. book because fen finally comes back to it as like a way of appeasing the guy and he's like i've been well, thinking the guy about hangs you. up on him and he's like um my one of my favorite bits in this book is in um chapter 12 the the missing link um the episode of the missing link is the full title and it's Cadigan or as i was reading it i couldn't get heidi's pronunciation of cadogan out of my head and by the way speaking of pronunciations i did some more research and initially when i looked this book up i heard people calling it um him gervasi which I was like, that sounds weird. But then I did some more research when I heard other people, as you said, Sean, saying Gervais. And so I think officially my stance is we should say Gervais. So like I'm going to read And then that. find I those think, other people and ask them some questions. Yeah, and I didn't, when I, I didn't find the, I think it was probably like a podcast. I don't know who it was when I first discovered this book a couple oh, years podcasters. ago. Oh, You can't listen to them. I know, you can't listen to them. I don't know what I was oh. thinking. They don't know how to pronounce anything It's like podcasts. Yeah, I, I know, it's like, you only read something and then next thing you know, you got to say it out loud. The reason right. I say Cadogan is because of Harry Potter. Uh, because there's yeah. the character, Sir Richard Cadogan, who's in the who's in the picture. And that's how they say it in the film. But mm. I don't know. I because don't, I'm on a podcast and we don't know how to we pronounce don't know what anything. To say, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, that guy is, uh, is hanging out with Sally. Um, and they're talking about how he's a poet. Oh, yeah. This is a great... And I think this actually would be fun to to read because this book I think actually yes. is very has some very fun creative things to say about literature itself. Like even the bit when he makes that funny joke about Philip Larkin, who Crispin was actually friends with, <laughs> right. like Philip Lark, uh, Larkin just that makes the worst. He's, all, he's just obsessed with making meaningless connections between the works of literature. <laughs> um, but the more I read this book, the more I think that Crispin actually seems to have a lot of things to say about poetry albeit they're said in a you know humorous way right. um sean you want to be cadigan slash cadogan and sure. maybe sally heidi and then be i'll be sally the, where are we starting the narrator um let's start with on the well i don't know it's like the second page of the chapter where it says um i think there's only one edition of this so everybody would have the right page number or the same well, page he's, numbers, in his, right? he's in his penguin. oh yeah so okay. it starts with um for us it's 178. I, I shouldn't have thought you'd have led a dull life. Oh yeah. Okay. The Sally. Top of 179. Yeah, oh yeah. So if you're in yeah. the penguin one, it's 172. Okay. Um, okay, start there. That's me, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. I shouldn't have thought you'd have led a dull life. Do though. Seeing the same people doing the same things, trying to make what I like doing and what people will pay me for overlap a bit more. But you're famous. 
Professor Fenn said you were, and I've just remembered why I've seen your face before. It was in the Radio Times. Okay, pause there for one second. I think it's hilarious that he makes a face for radio joke there. <laughs> it's like kind of just there, but anyway, yeah. I'll carry on. <laughs> ah, I wish they wouldn't publish these things without asking me first. It looked like a mystic trying to communicate with the infinite and tackle a severe bout of indigestion at the same time. <laughs> what did you do? Do? Oh, I see what you mean. I read poetry. What poetry? Oh, read poetry. Sorry. I'm... <laughs> Hard to tell. <laughs> Context clues. Uh, we, yeah, we did do a rehearsal here. <laughs> Some of my own. Sally grinned in the half darkness. I still can't imagine you writing poetry. For one thing, you're too easy to get on with. You know, that cheers me up. I was afraid I was degenerating into a mere word spinner, one wormy as height. Of course, you're saying things like that rather ruins it. <laughs> Sorry, it was a quotation from Pope. <laughs> I don't care who it was a quotation from. It's really rather rude to quote when you know I shan't understand, like talking about someone in a language they don't know. Dear. Uh, honestly, it's just a habit. And anyway, it'd be far ruder if I were to talk down to you as if you were a child. Sally was still considering the improbability of Cadigan's pretensions to poetry. She felt put out by his saturnine but unremarkable appearance. You ought to look different, too. Why? There's he no reason why poets... Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. He lit a cigarette and gave her one, too. There's no reason why poets should look like anything in particular. Wordsworth resembled a horse with powerful convictions. <laughs> Chesterton was wholly Falstaffian. Whitman was as strong and hairy as a gold rush prospector. <laughs> the fact is, there's no such thing as a poetic type. Chaucer was a government official. Sidney, a soldier. Villon, a thief. Marvell, a minister of parliament. Burns, a plowboy. Hausman, a don. You can be any sort of man and still be a poet. You can be as conceited as Wordsworth or as modest as Hardy. As rich as Byron, or as poor as Francis Thompson, as religious as Cooper, or as pagan as Caro. It isn't matter. It doesn't matter what you believe. Shelley believed every lunatic idea under the sun. Keats was certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections. And I'm willing to bet, my dear Sally, that you could pass for Shakespeare. You could pass Shakespeare on the way to work every morning for twenty years without noticing him once. Good Lord, this is developing into a lecture. Still, poets must be alike in some way. Well, certainly they are. They all write poetry. Well, then, what would make them all al that would make them all alike, at least partly? Would it? Cadigan exhaled a cloud of smoke and watched it drift spectral and gauzy across the pale oblong of the door. If all the poets are collected together in some anteroom of paradise, there'll be a good deal of social discomfort by this time. Marlowe will not be speaking to Dowson, and Emily Bronte will flee at the approach of Chaucer. He grinned, but went on more seriously. I think the only thing poets have in common is a kind of imaginative generosity of heart towards their fellows. And even then, one can't be too sure, with people like Baudelaire and Pope and unpleasant little neurotics like Swinburne. <laughs> no, there isn't such a thing as a poet type, and for a very good reason. Why? Cadigan groaned mildly. It's very nice of you to be so polite, but I do know when I'm being a bore. Sally yes. pitched him. I'm interested. Tell me why a poet doesn't have to be a man who needs a haircut. <laughs> because, said Cadigan, uneasily attempting to gauge the length of his own hair with his left hand. 
Poetry isn't the outcome of personality. I mean by that, it exists independently of your mind, your habits, your feelings, and everything that goes to make up your personality. The poetic emotions impersonal. The Greeks were quite right when they called it inspiration. Therefore, what you're like personally doesn't matter a two-penny damn. All that matters is whether you're a good receiving set for the poetic waves. Poetry's a visitation, coming and going at its own sweet will. Well, then, what's it like? As a matter of fact, I can't explain it properly because I don't understand it properly. And I hope I never shall. But it certainly isn't a question of, oh, look at the pretty roses, or, oh, how miserable I feel today. If it were, there'd be 40 million poets in England at present. It's a curious passive sensation. Some people say it's as if you've noticed something for the first time. But I think it's more as if the thing in question has noticed you for the first time. You feel as if the rose or whatever it is were shining at you. Invariably, after the first moment, the phrase occurs to you to describe it. And when that's happened, you snap out of it. All your personality comes rushing back, and you write the Canterbury Tales or Paradise Lost or King Lear, according to the kind of person you happen to be. That's up to you. And does it happen often? In the darkness, Cadogan shrugged. Every day. Every year. There's no telling if each time, whatever it is, may be the last. In the meantime, of course, one gets dull, middle-aged. The rain drummed steadily on the roof of the summer house. I think you ought to be married. You aren't, are you? No, but what an odd diagnosis. Why should I get married? You need someone to look after you and cheer you up when you get miserable. You may be right. No, I doubt it. I've only been in love seriously once in my life, and that was ages ago. Okay, let's stop there just for the sake of time. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so this is interesting because it's very funny. And oh, yeah. there's this bit in the book at another point that is essentially about not getting all of the jokes, right? Not understanding all of the information. And I think she even says that she didn't understand everything that he was saying or something like that. I don't remember exactly where it is. So on the one hand, we can read this section and this book in general without, and we talked about this last week, without getting every joke, right? You can still get the mystery, even if you don't know who all these people are or, you know, you could probably read this book if you were, well, actually, I was going to say you could probably read this book if you were illiterate, but that would be <laughs> you not don't listen how to it, though. illiterateness works. Um, Although maybe there's no audiobook. Were people having trouble finding I th- an I audiobook think, for this? I think, sorry, I think there is one. Okay. Because someone sent me a screenshot or sent us a screenshot on Instagram of an audiobook. Nice. Um, right. Actually, I would love to listen to this as an audiobook, um, hear the, hear the uh, performer. But so on the one hand, we can do it that way. And on the other hand, you could have a lot of fun just kind of like talking about his takes on all the different poets, like, you know, uh, <laughs> what does he say about uh, <laughs> yeah. Chesterton was Falstaffian and Wordsworth <laughs> resembled a horse with powerful conviction. <laughs> uh, Whitman is strong and hairy as a gold rush prospector. You could get into all those if you want to. Yeah. Um, but then he kind of also gives us this bit about the notion of inspiration and what does it mean to be a poet? And what I've been thinking about a lot is do we think that like should that is that something that's like this book wants you to be thinking about like does it have higher aspirations 
beyond just like making some good jokes about literature and being literary in its sense of humor and being a book for people who like books or does or you know and just like making that enjoyable or do you think that it's offering a sort of like ethos of poetry or poetics that it that it's being serious about like what what Cadigan's opinions here let's uh, let's say they stand in for our narrator um i i'm i'm what do you think about this heidi um or is this just a pedantic question to read to to ask about a comic mystery novel no i don't think it's i i don't think that i think that it certainly needed a moment of seriousness in the novel and a bit of of relational connection between the characters that wasn't just comic Mm -hmm. and that this conversation does that beautifully and that it makes sense that in a novel like this um that that's the nature of the conversation because the whole point like the problem that we're given at the beginning of the novel is not the murder it's Cadigan's career he yeah he wants to go on vacation so that he can write more poetry. And so at some point our author has to circle back and tie that up. And, um, and this conversation helps to serve that purpose. And we see how the murder um, and the hunt, the chase, the solving does that for Cadigan. But I think it's a neat bit of psychology because Cadigan is clearly bothered by the fact that he's middle-aged and he can't figure out how where he's going to go as a poet because he um because of the way he looks and because of the way uh because of his aging and so the murder hunt the mystery is the solution to that and we have to kind of turn back to it and then to your point i think that this conversation that he does stand in for for Edmund Crispin. I think that that's sincere, what he's saying about poetry. So I don't, I don't know if it's trying to be like the real book is the literary, the meta literary thing, right? Um, But I think it's really important in the book, and it adds a layer of of pathos and um, and gives us some skin in the game on Cadogan's. search for the next step in his life yeah yeah i think it also i think it really is an an economic piece of writing because you might come to this portion portion and think uh, if you're just into the the plot of the story that this was unnecessary uh but he uses it well not only to deepen the pathos for uh cadigan and uh remind us of his quest as a his literary quest as a poet uh, but in allowing sally to be present and engaged in this meditation uh i think we come to care more about her and then as the the genuine or when in a few pages in this same conversation we begin to develop a genuine fear that she may uh, a actually be the murderer or b be in a lot more danger of of actually taking the blame for this crime it it lands harder yeah Uh, i think we're more concerned about her being the murderer because we've just felt a kind of 
her presence in an intimate moment. Mm-hmm. And even when and if that passes, I think we begin to feel that there's still a lot of a lot at stake for her in this mystery being wrapped up because the evidence is beginning to pile up against her uh, and uh, having That's her point, yeah. having that revelation come on the heels of an intimate conversation between these two, uh, I think makes it work a lot better. And if, and of course that, that conversation culminates with talk about a, a sense ostensibly his being alone. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, it starts out being about poetry and he's cracking jokes and it's about, you know, uh, the creative life and being present and sitting down at the table so that when the, the you know, the muses do appear, you're able to take what they have to give you. But then she, she points out to him or reminds him yet again that he is alone and, you know, he causes him to think about the only time that he ever got close, but he knew in the moment that it was, would have been terrible and here he is by himself and they have that little moment where it's like in another life we could have potentially <laughs> you know been together they don't say that expressly but that's kind of the implication of yeah, yeah of his it. comment where he says a lot of people are going to want to marry you and she's like thanks but why and he goes because you're rich <laughs> <laughs> um but you know that for him like it's more than just that she's rich that there's there's been some kind of a connection to the point where he's like worried that she might eventually be part of the thing and he'd be sad about that yeah. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, hovering over the whole thing is he's not just a artist who is trying to get some inspiration or continue being a poet. It's like, what happens if he's a poet and he's alone? It's kind of if or if he's if he's a poet that doesn't have any ideas and he's alone, then that's kind of hovering over the story as well. Now, I don't want to make too much about it again in a comic novel, but um, I mean it's true of Bertie Wooster too. Without Jeeves, he's all alone. <laughs> and there's actually a lot of pathos in that. A lot That's of comedy right. is built around pathos like that. Yeah. Well, and in this story, Cadigan is the main character. It's not Finn. Yeah, um, true. And, and so we have to have a reason to care about him and to like root for him since it is Finn who's going... We know that it's Finn who's going to solve the murder... Um, but Fen throughout, he he stays a, a character, not a person. But Cadigan is a person. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the humor detracts from? Uh, maybe we talked about this a little bit last week. From the import, like from the stakes, like it, or I mean, like is that part of the reason why the puzzle maybe doesn't feel as? intense or the mystery doesn't feel as fraught because the comedy takes away from that i don't i i think that crispin is clearly a great stylist and can write any novel he wants um and so he intentionally downplayed the puzzle in order to make that a um in order to serve what he was really doing which i think is um this like self-aware kind of tongue-in-cheek look at Oxford and the culture of his time and the uh, the banter between the characters. So I think that that's kind of part. I think that's why the puzzle isn't so front and center. Hmm. Like he's doing that purposefully. Yeah. 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 That's I what think. I think. Yeah. And I think it works. Yeah. I wasn't even a little bit disappointed. I was like, oh, well, that's 
I mean, when I got there, I was like, oh yeah, well, I mean, that's not the perfect puzzle, but it was like the book's so delightful. The characters are so delightful. The scenes are so delightful that that seems like the point of the book. Like that's, that's what he's crafting is this like romp through Oxford. So when I first read this book, I remember thinking exactly what you're thinking about the puzzle. Just like, eh, it's like what you're saying. And, and so then I, I remember thinking we should do this in the show, but will people be disappointed by the puzzle? Uh, Cause for, you know, exactly the reasons that we're talking about. But then when I came back to it, not kind of like feeling, uh, not being worried about the puzzle, I actually found it was even more enjoyable. It had less surprises, but you're mm-hmm. able to kind of just like be more present for all of the humor. And I spent, I found myself rereading a lot of scenes and noting stuff and writing it down. And, and um, it, it's kind of a, it becomes, as you said, less a book about trying to solve something and more about hanging out, right? And it remind me of like those TV shows where what you're really, the reason you watch the TV show is because you're hanging out with the characters. Um, and that, that's how I feel about the Horowitz and Hawthorne, or uh, the Hawthorne, yeah, Hawthorne and Horowitz books as well. Um, Sean, were you going to say something like 30 seconds ago? Uh, Was it going to be a joke about Alexander Pope? <laughs> uh What's your take on Alexander Pope? I, Are you pro Pope? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, well, I do. I did want to say that I think that I don't even think that the that the humor in the book comes at the cost of realism. I think that if I were in this situation, I would also act in in a similar way. Uh, my one of my vices is to try and use humor humor to cope <laughs> with stress. Anyway, uh, yeah. And sometimes it gets me into trouble, but uh, I, 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 I would also like to imagine that I would make time to go grab a pint and uh, uh, puzzle things out in the pub and maybe have a literary argument on the. <laughs> in the meantime, uh, Did you ever go to? Have you ever been to a pub that didn't culminate in a literary argument? Honest question. Uh, I used to work yes. in a pub, and so well, there you... were times when I would go and not have oh. literary arguments because okay. I went so often. But they definitely do happen. Honestly, what's the uh, point of going to a pub that doesn't involve a literary argument? Agreed. Yeah, or at least where one can't break out. Right, right. You have to, yeah. The possibility of a literary argument breaking out needs to be there. Otherwise, right. can it really be true. called a pub? Then it's just a bar. Right. That's right. It's just a bar. That might be the, the real <laughs> distinguishing factor. <laughs> uh, to your other question, I'm, I'm a fan of Alexander Pope. Uh, I, think he's, <laughs> I think he's underrated. So you're, you're a papist. That's I'm a I'm a popist. A popist, yeah. There's a difference. Yeah, yes, there is. What, okay. Even though Alexander Pope was a papist. What do you <laughs> what the layers, the layers. Who who ironically never got to graduate from Oxford because he couldn't sign the uh the 39 articles in good conscience. So he never took a diploma from Oxford. Huh. Did yeah. not know that. Did you know that, yeah. Heidi? I did know that. And I think that Alexander Pope could fall out of the literary tradition no, and no one no, no, would no. notice. Heidi. Well, we've got Edmund Edmund Crispin like replacing him. Like use Hey, okay, so what do you guys make of the If end? I could if I could only have Swift or Pope, I would take Swift any day, if that makes any difference. But I have some affection for, for Alexander Pope. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you I can tell you Congrats why. Congrats on offering the defining later, but... the defining take on the Swift versus Pope debate. <laughs> Sean is not gonna drop this. Let the man speak. <laughs> Uh, no, I want to hear what David has to say. No, go ahead. I'm going to ask this, you what the well, final line is. I just feel like this now has to, this is probably going to be a long campaign. It's going to take years. I can't make it, I can't win the battle today. 
Uh, I one of the things that I admire about Alexander Pope is a that he was uh, he was consistent enough in his convictions uh, not to uh, abandon his Catholic faith, even though it cost him greatly, uh, and because he knew that he lived in an England where it would be difficult to get by as a recusant Catholic, he sat down and wrote his translations of his verse translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, and was able, they were so successful that he was able essentially to live on the proceeds of those poems for the remainder of his life uh, and thereby continue to live according to his principles. Uh, and I think that he's got some other fun poems. And then ultimately he's memorialized in the comedic novels of Edmund Crispin. That's right. That's right. So which is also what, glorious. You don't, you don't, Sean, you don't need to wage a war. Edmund Crispin already, <laughs> he already did it for already me. did it for you. Although it may not be in exactly the way that you, you wish. Um, That's all right. So at the end of the book, <laughs> Cadigan suggests, let's play awful lines from Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> However, they were not destined to begin this immediately, says our narrator, as women and, said Mr. Hoskins, suddenly have strange ways. <laughs> Everyone listened with respectful attention. <laughs> but for the Because the master is about to hold court. Yeah, exactly. Women have strange ways. But for the eccentricities of Miss Snaith, none of this business would have come about. You remember what Pope said about women and the rape of the lock? He looked inquiringly about him. It goes like this, with varying vanities from every part, they shift the moving toy shop of their heart. Dear me. Now, I have some <laughs> questions about this. Let's work backwards. Who do you suppose is supposed to be saying dear me there? I assumed Hoskins. I did too. Because so as it's coming out of his mouth, he's realizing... Right, he's the, realizing the what he's saying. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 No, and as you said, there's no court. There's no court. I think you're about to say that. Heidi, quotation marks. Yeah, there's no quotation marks. Yeah, I like the idea of that. I think I think it's supposed to be Hoskins, but I like the idea of you of you being able to sort of read it as a double meaning, where he's like, you as a reader, you can just be like, "Come on, Crispin," you know. There's like a <laughs> sort of, "Oh, brother, here we go again" thing going on there, um, in a very English, proper English sort of way. Oh yeah. <laughs> so. Um, I, I don't want to ask a question like, is this too on the nose here? But well, like, Sean, I think that's you, the joke. Right, right. So that's why yeah. I want to ask the question. Right. So, so Sean, <laughs> you mentioned this a little bit last time, but do you want to talk about what's like, is it worth even talking about this line and the rape of the lock and, and like women's uh, strange ways, according to Hoskins and how that plays into it? Or is it just better to make it one of those situations where if you don't get the joke, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Like, what's your take on this as, a, as the, uh, as the pro Pope uh, expert among <laughs> us here? The Pope is. And then we'll Heidi correct you. I think this is, I think this is absolutely a time where it is okay. If you don't get the joke, you don't need to know the rape of the lock to get the joke here. Uh, but there is a deeper experience and appreciation maybe that will enter in oh, if you do if you do know the rape of the lock. So if you don't, don't want yep. the rape of the lock spoiled so say, here, yeah. skip ahead uh, 20 minutes. Or if you want yeah. to read 6,000 lines of heroic couplets just so you know the story of the rape of the lock, <laughs> just tell us, Sean, for the love of God. <laughs> okay, well, in, in Pope's defense, the rape of the lock I like is... that he feels like he has to start with, in Pope's defense. <laughs> I do, I, I feel that way now. Uh 
it's a it's satire because poems of his day had already gotten so overblown. So he writes an overblown subject or a poem about a ridiculous subject to make fun of all the the self-serious poems of his age that were also overblown. Uh, so the rape of the lock is this mock epic. I, yeah, we did talk about this a little bit last week. Yeah, just a uh, little about bit. about a creepy dude in an aristocratic sitting room who loves this uh, this cute girl, and so <laughs> he he transgresses by uh, surreptitiously snipping off a lock of her hair. Uh, rape rape is. Uh, comes from the Latin word rapere, which is a more generic word for seizing or taking. It does not always have the the single connotation that we usually give it today. And so that's the that's the affair that is then immortalized in this overblown poem that makes it sound like uh, a Homeric battle uh, between you know Hector and Achilles. Uh, it's really just some skeevy dude <laughs> snipping off some hair at a tea party. Is it really six thousand lines? That's an exaggeration. It feels like okay. it. <laughs> right, okay. okay. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Edmund Crispin may have um, improved on Pope, Heidi. I, 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 am, I, I am overblowing my antipathy to Pope just to give Sean a hard <laughs> right, time. Right, because it's a conversation. <laughs> the, yeah. yeah, that's right. It's Now it's a bit, and I got to stick that's to right, it. Right, that's um, right. But, like the measure for measure. Exa- yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, I too have theories on measure for measure, actually. It's so, so great. Well, yeah. yeah, we could talk about that um, all day. So I, I, and Pope is objectively a great poet. So <laughs> I will, I so will, I will you give do? you that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do think that the whole idea of this um, tempest in a teapot, like how she creates the thing that she fears, right? She's afraid <laughs> of being murdered. And so she creates this um, insanely complicated, yeah, um, this insanely complicated scheme uh, to protect herself. And then that ends up causing all of this harm and leading to a murder. And um, And leaves a bunch of her money to people that have no emotional attachment to her. Well, that are wicked people, right? (laughs) Like they're bad. Like she has no ability to uh, discern uh, who is worthy of it. And it's um, all based on correspondences, right? Exactly. They look like characters from poems I like. Yeah. Yeah. And that is worth ending the novel on because there is a darkness to that that is. that that really ought not to be entirely overshadowed by the humor. Mm-hmm. And I think Crispin knows that. And that also might be why the the puzzle is so simple. Um mm-hmm. because the uh plot that everything that led to it is so complicated. Um and that's the thing that we have to follow and solve, right? Like and the 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 web of deceit that was spun by this woman who wasn't necessarily a bad person, but she created the thing that she feared. Um, and, and that the vanity of that is, is, is worth kind of ending the novel on mm. and reminding yeah. us of, I think. Yeah. That, That's a great point. That darkness is kind of fits in with um, Fenn's final lines too. Um, like on that last page, 
Cadigan kind of offers a summary of what different people are going to do. And he says, Spode's gone back to London. I tried to get him to increase my royalties, but he wouldn't. Evasive is a fish. So we're back where we started as far as that goes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then Sally says, so you're going to write some poetry now? And he says, yeah, and I might even try my hand at a novel. Um, and then Fenn says, flogging dead horses in midstream. That's so great. <laughs> what are you going to do, Sally? He grumbled. He grumbled. Yeah. He grumbled. <laughs> His asides are one of the best parts of the book when he's just kind of totally. like commenting on everybody. Um, oh, I don't know. I shall keep it, keep on with my job for a bit. I shouldn't know how to get through the day otherwise. How about you, Anthony? Mr. Hoskins stirred. I shall continue my studies. Good evening, Jacqueline. He saluted a passing blonde. <laughs> Wilkes, said Fenn sharply. Eh? What are you going to do with yourself now? Mind your own business, said Wilkes. Cadigan hastily interposed with, How about you, Gervais? I, said Fenn. I shall pursue my orderly and dignified progress toward the grave. That's, that's his final line. I love that. <laughs> and, the, and like, it's funny, but also it's like the the specter of mortality from beginning right. to yeah. end is hovering over this novel, not just in the sense that people die, but in the sense that you've got an old woman who is consumed with her own death and what's going to happen to her money after that. She's terrified of the way that it's going to happen. That like that it would be unnatural. Uh, Fen here at the end sort of summarizes it, but then as we've said, Cadigan has his own uh, concerns about his his aging, and you know it's the specter of it is all over the novel. And you, he, I think that's one of the reasons why there's so many people who he describes as being old. Like there's old men all over the place, old yeah, people true. in right. general. Like the the specter of aging is discussed on almost like at least in every chapter i bet on every page it's pretty close to every page someone mm. is commenting on becoming old or someone is being described as old and you've got the whole thing about the guy riding the bike and like his eyes and his face like how bony and like he almost looks like you know a skeleton how skeletal he looks um yeah then <laughs> even seems to resent wilkes mostly because he's old yeah yeah I, the, the fear of being becoming old and what it means is really hovering over this book in sort of a melancholy way yeah um, much in the way that Woodhouse can be melancholy at times too, not to keep beating uh -huh. on that, you know, beating on that dead horse, that dead horse <laughs> flogging that dead horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think there's, I, I think he. This is such a well crafted book mm -hmm. thematically. Like he doesn't lose track of the threads. You know, there's the thing in mystery novels with the Chekhov's gun, right? And he introduces right. these ideas constantly, and he never loses them, such that they become Chekhov gun ideas or themes, which a lot, which bad novelists or mediocre novelists do all the time and you get modern right. novels that are mystery novels often will sort of drop a theme the author seems to think is interesting but then lose track of it and they're not able to bring it back around um and I, there's even a few times in christie novels where i think that happens um and i think this in one are later novels for sure because yeah. she well, got kind of because she got yeah, because of <laughs> age yeah, yeah. yeah. the yeah. specter yeah. of aging even <laughs> the order even the gun progress yeah. towards the grave even yeah, the gun yeah. itself comes back uh, right, we have a gun fired ineffectually at the, in the opening scene of the novel, mm. uh, and then it's it is the gun, yeah. the presence of the gun that that causes Fen to contemplate his own death, right, and the possibility of dying uh, as he approaches this gunman and and reflects on um, yeah the the very real possibility of being killed if he tries to rush this fellow. That's a great point because at the beginning when they're hunting, he they're shooting at the beginning and he. Uh, Cadigan misses the shot and he's basically like I missed from it's like that uh, Bill Murray line I missed from five feet um, <laughs> but then the gun there's like uh, guns kind of 
considering that no murder is done with a gun, they kind of hover like there's a gun on the desk in one scene, and there's like yeah, a no, couple the, different there scenes. is the uh, the lawyer. Oh, with the, the lawyer is killed with the yeah. rifle. Yeah, but yeah. even that, like the gun is disappearing. So that's right. Um, but the main murder wasn't committed with a yeah. gun. I guess is what I meant. But so he he's really good at taking these images, taking these themes, and they just kind of become specters over the story. Yeah. Um, all right, Heidi's sick, so let's wrap this up. Heidi, you want to? Um, I think offer... I'm all done. Even though <laughs> I feel like I'm derailing. Any final thoughts before you um, you're, you're go like back to your British Agatha crime Christie. shows? No, I just want to go lay on the couch and take up my orderly and dignified progress towards the grave. <laughs> it's Great. been a pleasure knowing you, Heidi. Yes, yeah, this right. is the end. <laughs> well, um, I think uh, Sean, this might be a good time for you and I to inspire Heidi. Uh, possibly by uh, calling to mind various lines from Henry V's uh, Edmund Crisp- uh, Crispin's Day speech, which oh, I enjoy man. thoroughly that Edmund Crispin brings that back in. Into <laughs> yeah. his, just so <laughs> winkingly. So, <laughs> yeah. um, Wink, so yeah. if you would like to, um, you know, perhaps, you know, inspire Heidi with a few lines of Henry V, then by all means do so. If we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss. And if to win right. the greater share of honor. Oh, she's going to do it herself. All right. Uh, do you feel inspired to, <laughs> to endure <will>. this? <laughs> do not wish one man more. It, we're um, very close. We're like 10. Oh, yeah. We're yeah, nine days. Yeah, it's two weeks from St. Oh, yeah. We're recording so. on the 11th, but you'll hear it on a different yeah. day. It'll be close. Yeah. Yeah, you'll hear yeah. this. Well, uh, a few days shy. I, I'm still going with the Heidi's going to die bit. So I guess uh, in, may you be remembered in our flowing cups. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Freshly remembered. This yeah, story right. shall the good man teach his son. Tell your sons about me. Uh, hey, before we go, should we just play awful lines from Shakespeare? <laughs> I just... think that the joke is that didn't happen because it's impossible. Oh, I, I agree with that. And that's why he's referencing all of... I'm sure there are some... Unless I, it's... Uh, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, all right. Well, we're going to let Heidi go. Sean... Uh, this is you're free to do whatever you want as well now. So um, thank you. Uh, for a, I I feel like this is a running theme. It's my eldest son's birthday tomorrow, so I've got some uh, some preparations to do. Happy birthday! Why, to him. What's yeah. the That's running so theme? Because you uh, keep having oh, kids just, with birthdays. Yeah, I feel like we were talking about yeah your son having a birthday. Oh yeah, soon yeah. a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess if you have enough kids, you're always having a birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. How old is he? Uh, Samuel turns ten tomorrow. Mm. Big. That's yeah. a big. That's a big. Uh, point for both the kid and the parents. Once you have, yeah, a, that's right. Yeah, ten year old. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of. Uh, My oldest is twelve. That's like going a, on. a different. It's like. Yeah, you're you're on the cusp of sixteen. They start getting moody at twelve. <laughs> they yeah, start getting moody. I got, at I got 10. lots. I got lots of comments on that, but well, I'm going to save those for when I'm not publicly <laughs> saying them on the air. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll talk about those things separately. So, all right. Uh, don't forget that next week we will do our Q and A episode. So, if you have questions about this novel or mystery novels in general that you would like us to address, please feel free to post those over on the thread on Substack. Uh, and in the meantime, well, we will be moving on to our next book. And Sean, this is the book that you chose, right? Yeah, Candle for Leibowitz. We'll have the schedule. I am really excited to read this book. I've never read Me it too. before. We'll have the schedule. By the time this episode is airing or like posting on the Substack, uh, that that schedule will be published um, in our our October update uh, email. But yeah, yeah, we're getting excited for that. So in the meantime, you can be reading that. Got a lot of bonus content as well. Movies and poetry and And so on. So on. And so on. All the things. 
So there's lots for you to, you know, consume to the point where you'll be tired of hearing from us. Um, so, uh, You're really you selling know. it. Yeah, People are really wanting to I'm sign just, up I'm right re- now. I mean, honestly, I'm just well, really thinking. Gulps, huh? I've been sitting here thinking about uh, dignified progress toward the grave. So, you know, <laughs> what really you, is David. a podcast in light of all that? So, you know, for Heidi White, Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Till next time, happy progress and reading. Mm-hmm.